Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Earlier today, I had an interesting conversation with a Vanderbilt University historian, Michael Bess. He has a new book out, Planet in Peril, Humanity's Four Greatest Challenges and How We Can Over, we being, I guess, humans, how we can overcome them. One of those challenges, at least according to Bess, is I think what he calls superhumans, um, machines that acquire consciousness and thereby, I guess, enslave us or rule over us. This has been a a science fictional trope for many generations, and it suggests that we can somehow manufacture consciousness, or at least we can invent it, or consciousness, whatever that word means, um, can be uh, in existence somewhere outside human beings. Um, It's a disconcerting and intriguing idea Uh, And the idea of consciousness is also dealt with in my guest today, uh, Patrick House, the author of a new book published this week called 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Uh, Patrick is joining us from Los Angeles, the depths of Los Angeles or the liver of Los Angeles, as he described it earlier, downtown Los Angeles. I didn't know Los Angeles had a downtown. Um, Michael, uh, uh, sorry, not Michael, uh, Patrick, that shows my consciousness is on the blink. Uh, Patrick, this idea that consciousness can be manufactured or invented and that we can make machines that are as conscious as us, is this just science fiction? Well, we have at least one example, which is, uh, you know, nature manufactured our us to have consciousness. So we know it can work at least once given a certain set of conditions. Um, the question of whether or not we know enough to design it from scratch, whether or not we can make kind of our own the same way we can make microchips or pneumatic tubes or uh, steam turbines, you know, and the, as if it's just one step further to then make a being which can feel and think the, the, the way that we do. Um, you know, it's not science fiction anymore. Um, things are getting a lot closer to, to kind of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, for those who are familiar with that, which is kind of a biological silicon hybrid. Um, But of course, like kind of media film, we've been playing with these tropes for such a long time, right? Uh, Alien, the the, the creature, the xenomorph from Alien, it fed off the ship. It was half organic, half half robot, half kind of inorganic material. Um, So... The idea that consciousness is exclusive to natural biological material seems pro- is almost certainly going to be wrong. I, I can't imagine why it would be the case that consciousness was exclusive to a very particular kind of cell or a very particular kind of uh, natural way of being. Uh, it seems clear that it's some sort of thing that happens when a, when a system needs to, um, needs to achieve a certain goal. So I see, I see no reason why we could not have conscious robots. You mentioned earlier, Patrick, that nature manufactured consciousness. So it's happened once. Was this um, 
a conscious manufacturing? What exactly do you mean by nature? You know, I wrote, I wrote a, um, uh, I was asked to review a book about virtual reality once. Um, and the, uh, the, I wrote back to the editor saying, well, I'll, I'll do it, but I'd, I'd prefer to do one of those kind of like London review books or New York review books, things where I, where I do multiple ones, one of which was a video game, one of which was a book, and the other of which was, if I'm going to review virtual reality, I might as well review reality in order to have some sort of like uh, distinction there. And they had this funny thing on their website when they published it. Um, they allowed me to do that. And so it's a picture of the Big Bang. Uh, and it says, you know, uh, they, but they had a stock format that they couldn't change when they described each of the um, books or pieces of media that you usually review. And it required that I list the publisher and the publication date of reality. And so in a sense, I had to kind of almost fact check myself into or, or rather back myself into this question, which is, um, and I, th I think what we, we, you know, there was a bit of back and forth, but I think we ended up on anonymous 14.3 uh, billion years ago as the uh, publisher and publication date. So what maybe to make this like a little bit more, um, a little bit more concrete. So my, my PhD work, I studied, I, I did research on a parasite, a tiny single cell parasite, it's called Toxoplasma gondii, that gets into mice and gets into the mouse brain and makes them, some percentage of them, um, some of the time, lose their fear for cats. They become, they seem to become attracted to the cat. They seem to, instead of go away from it, they, they move towards it if given the option. And what's really interesting there is that you have what I believe, and I think anyone pressed would believe is a conscious creature, which is the mouse. And then you have something coming in and kind of Fig figuratively worming its way into the brain and finding itself there nestled into the, into the mouse's brain, shaping its preferences, presumably shaping its perception, its percep perception of the cat and the cat smell is probably different um, and impinging on their consciousness. And so then one of the questions that I find so fascinating about this and that particular kind of model is, is, is the behavior that is ultimately out there of the mouse when it runs towards the cat. Is that the mouse now, or is that the mouse plus the parasite? Or do we, do we, do we separate or carve them into two different things? And the reason I say that now with, with kind of respect to this, this artificial intelligence question is, to me, I can see no reason why there's a difference between having a single-celled protozoan in the brain shaping behavior versus having a microchip in the brain shaping behavior. There's no difference. It's whether or not it's a parasite or silicon or, uh, uh, you know, it, it, these things in there, they get folded into the conscious apparatus somehow. And so to me, I, I, I really truly make no distinction between the two, except for the fact that in one of the systems, which would be the biological one, we have no idea how it works. We cannot replicate it. We can't even replicate the most simple basic feature of a cell. A cell is still orders of magnitude more mysterious. Just an individual cell is still orders of magnitude more mysterious than anything modern science understands. Whereas these little microchips that we do put in brains, there's a couple hundred thousand people that have a deep brain stimulator implanted into their brain, which just spits out electricity and therefore changes and shapes their, their epilepsy or their Parkinson's, but also their preferences. Um, of we've started, we've started install, I'm going to say installing, but that, you know, you can use your, your term of art, however you wish. We've started installing deep brain stimulators in people's brains to control 
certain um, medical conditions like severe obesity, which is very different than what we've classically done with, say, give people these implants for Parkinson's or epilepsy, where we're just trying to fix the tremor. We're trying to fix the seizure. We're trying to tamp down the, the Parkinsonian side effects, that kind of stuff. But with, with obesity and with obsessive compulsive disorder and these, these kind of off-label uses of these devices, we've started to tap a little bit more into what it means to be human, right? Like th these devices actually staunch the craving for food, which is, which is pretty profound um, in a sense of like, well, if you can do that for some kind of impulse or drive or urge that someone would have to keep eating or to never be hungry, if we can start to change their the way they see the world, we're, we're getting into some interesting kind of moral, phenomenological, philosophical, philosophical territory. So, so I really truly don't see the difference between a single cell parasite controlling a mouse or rather shaping its preferences a tiny bit versus this deep brain, brain stimulators that we're installing in people's brains currently every week, every day, uh, that's shunting and shaping their preferences. So, so it, it, is, it would not at all be surprising given that we know nature came up with consciousness at least once um, and that through simple blasts of electricity, simple and coordinated blasts of electricity, we can totally change what it means to be conscious on the inside of our own minds. So the, the merging of the two is coming. It really is. I don't, I wouldn't give it any term or name or any catchy kind of viral meme like name, but like it's coming, it's happening. And if you might even argue that it's already here. Patrick is our consciousness as humans. Is it any more interesting than the mouse you bring up? The reason I ask is there's just as we seem to be stumbling towards inventing our own consciousness this this idea you just talked about we also seem particularly fascinated with the consciousness of other species we had ed young on the show recently i'm sure you're familiar with his book about animal senses another book about sentience and and, and other creatures are we in any way is our quote-unquote consciousness is it any more interesting than the consciousness of mice or rats or monkeys um, and, and, and in your book, this idea of 19 ways of looking at consciousness, is that human consciousness or just all life forms of consciousness? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards. Uh, the book, it's, I focus on a single story, a single anecdote um, told in each of the kind of 19 ways of looking at, which is a human specific anecdote because it involves language it involves confabulation. Um, uh, so basically in the, in the mid 1990s, there was a teenage girl who had epilepsy and they couldn't figure out where the epilepsy was coming from. And uh, they, they needed to almost like you would put, imagine there was an earthquake happening somewhere in the world and we didn't know where we didn't have seismic sensors to figure it out. We would have to kind of core into the earth's crust and maybe place a few dozen seismic sensors around the world. And then when the earthquake happens, you can kind of triangulate or coordinate from all these seismic sensors exactly the position and the duration and the strength of the earthquake. So the neurosurgeons do exactly that, but for seizures when they can't figure out where it comes from. And so this girl had these electrodes, which are the seismic recording devices, um, implanted into her, through her skull in her head. And she was awake and they asked her, um, 
you know, to, to do a bunch of tasks, to, uh, uh, to tell what she remembers, to just to keep talking, because they wanted her to keep talking as she was awake with the, the electrodes in her brain. And the surgeons had asked, um, um, at some point they were stimulating, not just recording, but actually, again, like I said about the deep brain stimulators, we can, you know, we're special in the sense that, um, no, actually I take that back. We're not special in the sense that just any electrical charge um, placed in the right spot can completely change how we think and how we act. And what they did was they stimulated a certain part of her brain, the supplementary motor area, like right here, and they um, caused her to laugh. And when she laughed, the people in the room, the, the, the surgeon asked, and or maybe one of the attendants asked, you know, why did you laugh? And she gave kind of implausible answers, implausible and incorrect answers every time. She said, um, I think you guys are just standing around so funny. The fork is funny. The horse on the wall, the painting on the wall is funny. Um, each time she gave a different answer. None of her answers were, well, the surgeon has a stimulating electrode stuck in the supplementary motor area of my brain, which is uh, 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 because it's discharging some current is causing the supplementary motor era to uh, area to kind of activate neurons and muscles in my throat, which is compressing air in a certain wavelength that is being discharged into the room and perceived by those in the room as laughter, right? Like that's the mechanical explanation. And so what's to get a little bit to your question, which is like that kind of self-report, which is her confabulating an answer was to me fascinating because that is one of the few things that when you're probing a human brain, the human can tell you about. That self-report is unique in all of the scientific kingdom, right? Mice can't really tell you what they're, what, they're, what they're about, what they're feeling. You have to kind of infer it with all these crude secondary measures. But they can't tell people, us. Maybe they can tell each other. Yeah, they, they certainly speak. Um, I, they speak, I have a, a microphone that can like basically sample into the ultrasonic waves. They, they speak in like 40,000 hertz or 60,000 hertz, and then you just kind of sample it down to be able to listen to it. Kind of like whale songs, you have to downsample. Um, they're certainly speaking to each other. Um, I personally don't think, I think humans have a few features that other brains ha uh, uh, don't. We have certain language learning loops that allow us to um, uh, effectively allow us to coordinate very well incoming acoustic input with outgoing motor output. Um, the very simple version of what that would look like would be dancing. Uh, and, and I know that sounds insane, uh, but there's very, very few, there's maybe half a dozen species on the entire planet that can actually do that complicated neuro neurological and motor task, which is literally just learning how to coordinate your body's movement to sound. Um, but there's nothing actually intrinsically interesting about language itself. Language is a motor movement. It's a, it's a movement. It's you're just moving these little muscles here. It's no different. The, the neurons that generate language, um, wherever they're coming from in your brain, they don't know what's on the other side of what they're doing, right? The, the, the lessons that they learn, the universal theory of computation in the brain, the F equals MA equals MC squared of the brain will have to, I believe, start from the position and vantage point that those, those individual cells of which we are just a collection of 86 billion, um, they don't know what they're doing on either side. They don't know whether or not on either side of it, there's a muscle that they're activating to walk they don't know if there's a muscle to activate to make someone talk. They don't know if there's another neuron on the other side. So 
there's very, very little that is unique about the human brain when you um, compare it across all the other kinds of brains in the kind of animal kingdom. I love that the title of your book, um, Patrick, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Of course, that's, you know, you probably had to deal with dumb questions about why there aren't 18 or 17 or 20. I'm not going to ask that one. But I'm curious as this idea of looking at consciousness. Um, uh, you have a, a David Lynch-like quality. I don't know if other people have, have mentioned it, but you look like the guy in uh, a razor head. When I look at your photo, and then do, do you mean to look like him? My point simply being that looking and the act of looking seems to be very important for you, perhaps consciously or otherwise. Could the title of the book be 19 Ways of Listening to Consciousness or Hearing Consciousness or imagining consciousness what's the act of looking is that key to your theory yeah um, i love that so i love that question um so first of all it it can it can't in the sense that um what i had there's a book called 19 ways of looking at long way yeah um, you got that one that's a chinese book well not a book right. Chinese book, but a book on a Chinese artist, Wang Wang. A book on, right. So there's an old poem from 800, uh, uh, ancient Chinese poet Wang Wei. And so, of course, my title is a direct reference to that title. So, yes, I could, right. have, I could have switched each of the words and transposed them and made their own meaning. Um, but fundamentally, what I was interested in is I, re I read that book as, a, uh, I think, an undergrad. And I you was, were at Stanford, right? Or undergrad? Um, I did Berkeley for UC Berkeley for my undergrad and Stanford PhD for, for grad school. Um, oh dear, so you went downhill after Berkeley. That's, so there's a funny thing where people make these uh, category divides, but they're the same. It's the same people and there's just Bay Area. You know, it's the same <laughs> people everywhere. It's, there's no action. It's, it's a false rivalry. It's a false distinction. It's, I, I care not at all about any of that. Uh, in-group stuff. I'm not very uh, collegial. Strong, I'm not very collegial. I don't have strong fealty to any any arbitrary. You probably don't have a wife. Do you have a wife? I don't. Uh, I have a wife who's Stanford, so I have to make anti-Stanford jokes. But go on, continue. I understand. Um, and I was continually struck as I learned more and more about science and neuroscience and uh, uh, these kind of not even competing because they're not really antagonistic in any sense, theories of consciousness and the, the, the modern ones. And when I say that, I mean that like kind of proving one would not disprove the others. These aren't in direct conflict. Like you might imagine different theories of gravity in the 1600s were directly in conflict. Um, I realized that actually the, the only true, the, the way of thinking about it, uh, the way of thinking about consciousness in the brain that most, appealed to me was actually as a translation problem. So I find it very bothersome that we have inefficient and ultimately compressed, highly compressed and possibly so compressed as to be distorting the truth, um, tools to, to communicate what it's like on the inside of our own heads. So language is extraordinarily compressed. It's like a, you know, a, a, an image that you then take and compress over and over and over, and it becomes undecipherable at some point. Um, you know, we, we live in the middle range of this compression, but, but ultimately we, are, we usually completely fail at getting across to someone else, even say a romantic partner for one's entire life, 
what it's truly like on the inside of our minds. Hmm. And so ultimately, I think the methodology of study that best applies to consciousness and to neuroscience and to trying to figure out what's going on both in your own mind and other people's minds, you're going to have to confront this translation issue. And so what I really loved about that Wang Wei book, The 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, was that it's just the same four-line poem over and over 19 different times. And there's no, there's no correct translation, right? There's no right way for it to exist. The original was lost. So the original poem as written by the original author is lost, lost to time, lost to history. So all we have are its translations. And I feel biologically, um, th there's a similar argument to be made that all we have left are the translations of whatever the first conscious creature was. We are the translations. We are the translations that are left over. And there is no right way to think. There is no one way to be. Um, and so, so that's why to your to your question about like why not or to your unasked question about why not 18 or 20, it was simply because I was I was uh, modeling after 19 ways of looking a long way. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure I would guess animals, they, 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 they must be conscious. And I can see no reason why they're not. And um, what's so funny is I was once asked, um, so I, I did this thing, I was kind of as a journalist, I was tagging along um, in India where there was a consciousness conference or their kind of scientific debate around consciousness with a bunch of prominent scholars from the West and the Dalai Lama, the, the, the Tibetan or uh, whatever, yeah, the Dalai Lama. And um, the, the, there was this like hushed silence the first night over dinner, which was people needed to know whether or not they could um, kill mosquitoes in front of the Buddhists because nobody knew whether or not to import the uh, kind of other cultures' uh, beliefs mm -hmm. in this. And it was just this funny thing that like, despite, you know, we can, in physics, I think they were, you know, what were they doing then? In, in physics, they were like landing autonomous cars on Mars, or they were studying the origins of the Big Bang through like these miraculous tunnels that they built under Italian mountains and in the Swiss countryside. And, you know, the physicists over here are studying the beginning of the goddamn universe. They're splitting atoms. They are at the very, very, cutting edge. They're discovering new, like, foundational forces. Um, uh, they, they can predict, you know, uh, asteroids thousands and thousands of light years away and all this movement and everything. And here we are, the cutting edge leading neuroscientists of the world being like, oh, I don't know, is this little fly conscious? I don't know. What is sadness? You know, like, oh, why, why, do, why do people still keep, um, um, you know, just like to, to your to your earlier question, kind of what is one thing that a human brain can do that an animal brain can't do? We are, I believe, the only species that kills themselves, right? There's, it's the only species that, it's the, the brain is the only organ that somehow um, uh, turns itself off occasionally. And here we are as neuroscientists debating these little things about whether or not a fly is conscious. Well, fundamentally, we haven't really solved anything. We haven't, we haven't fixed a single disease. Um, we still don't know what most things are. And it just feels to me like there's this, there's this genuine backward, backward attitude where our, uh, about the optimism that many neuroscientists have. It sounds like a great kind of 
sexy uh, frontier field, right? To be a neuroscientist, to study the most complicated thing in the universe. But we've mostly failed. We haven't solved a single thing. Um, and so I find that quite frustrating. And so I focus on the, um, the human side of things in the book. You focus on the human side of things. As you say, neuroscience doesn't, hasn't done a very good job making sense of consciousness. Um, but, but coming back to my question about looking versus hearing, our business or one's business as an artist is, I, I guess in some ways, not all artists, but many artists are trying to replicate their own version of, of, of consciousness. So that's why I was kind of curious as to the eraser head thing. You look like a character out of a David Lynch movie, and perhaps it's no surprise that you're coming to me from the liver, as you describe it, of Los Angeles. Do you think in creative terms, I mean, writers try to replicate consciousness in novels, filmmakers in movies, um, uh, composers in music? Who's done a good job in that area? Do any of them? Have they done better than the neuroscientists? The consciousness of others, and, and you said earlier, and this to me is so intriguing, that we can't explain or manifest what it's like to be someone else, to live inside another person. But that's what artists try to do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so let's, let's break down the tools that we have to get inside someone else's head. There's theory of mind. Um, there's language and, you know, theory of mind is us using all of, as an individual from the inside of our heads, using all of our experience to infer what another person may or may not want. Um, it's a, a, you know, kind of like a, a more official version of empathy. Um, <clears throat> we have language to communicate what things are going on. And so the, this question of which medium, I actually love this question of which medium is the best to communicate what it's like on the inside of someone's head and who, who has succeeded, right? So stream, stream of consciousness literature came along at some point. I think the first use of it was in the 1910s um, to describe a novel by Dorothy Richardson. And immediately the first, I think it, the, the, the phrase came from William James. It, it kind of found its way around, maybe people said it for a while, but the first time we found it archivally in print is in reference in a review to describe this one book by this woman, Dorothy Richardson. And um, she wrote a letter to the magazine after this review. She read the review and wrote a letter back saying that she objected mightily to the phrase stream of consciousness because to her, consciousness sits stiller than a tree. That was her exact quote. So like the literally the first mention or the first attempt of this new form of literature, which was stream of consciousness, Stream of, the, the attempts to, um, uh, uh, let's, let's call it like capture interiority, capture what it's, what it's truly like, the cadence and the pacing of one's thoughts. Um, it, it, nonetheless, the first, the, nonetheless, the very first conversation about that was disagreement about what it's like on the inside. And um, I actually really believe that the, the kind of, if you've tried these new virtual reality things, um, I believe they're actually getting very close to not the interiority of what it's like on the inside of a head, but actually um, to what stream of consciousness literature kind of wanted to achieve back a hundred years ago. I think it took a hundred years, but the new form, the new genre of it is in, in these VR games. I personally find um, probably the most successful piece of art to 
get at what it's like on the inside of someone's head, or at the very least on the inside of my head, because I imagine different kinds of art, uh, uh, different people respond to different kinds of art differently. But for me, there's uh, Robert Pinsky, the poet, has a text-based adventure game called Mind Wheel. And it's effectively a stream of consciousness short story, but you have a little bit of control over it. It's a text-based game. You're literally typing. It's from the 80s or early 90s or something. And the reason I say that is because I think there's a extremely broad Mariana's trench of uncanny valley with most of film, a lot of very descriptive realist literature, that kind of thing, where what the human brain does when it's receiving a piece of art is fill in all the gaps. And there's a very elegant um, uh, amount of information. There's the right amount of information that you want to give a brain to allow it to fill in most of it, but to kind of shape what it may or may not fill in. And so for whatever reason, the, my experience of the closest I've ever had to the inside of, inside of someone else's head was this one text-based game because I had a little bit of interactivity. I had a little bit of control over where things went, but it was mostly imagined. And of course, you could never sell a text-based game these days, right? Because we need to be, we need to have our imagination kind of uh, mostly controlled for us. Uh, but but I do think there's a kind of sweet spot of of hinting that perhaps um, some some art forms get at and others don't. Um, I, I think I can finally answer your looking question, by the way, versus other oh. verbs and ways of um, uh, other ways you might have, have titled the piece. So. I do actually believe that one of the best pieces of data for how consciousness arose and how and why it is the case that our brain and the way that the brain kind of creates the, the perception of reality around us is much, much strain, stranger than we intuit and much, much stranger than it first appears. So we are moving our eyes um, three times a second at least we're psychotic, right? Our eyes are going like this always. If you anesthetize the muscles around the eyes such that it's perfectly still and literally the person cannot move their eyes, the visual world in front of them uh, disappears. It extinguishes in a puff of gray smoke. It goes away. You need the movement in order to generate the differences as you glance and kind of sample around the room and move your head, you're never still, you're never perfectly still. And there's some, there's this beautiful, extremely simple experiment you can do with this, which is if you close one eye and you say, I don't know what your depth of field looks like, but if you look at an object in your room, anywhere in your room, just pick anything. It could be a corner. It could be a, an actual. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Well, I closed one eye. Which one does it matter? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And just look okay. like a little, a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right of whatever that object is. Not, not with your whole head. Just your eye. Just move your eye, it's like a tiny bit, like two inches, one way, two inches the other way. Keep yeah. Your head perfectly still. The world is, the world stays stable, right? The, the, the world, the wall. If it's your, say, looking at a wall, it's perfectly stable. It doesn't move. Is that true, for you? I think so. I think. I... So what? Well, so you can, you can now do it. Take that same eye, take your finger, and you, you know, don't push. Well, you got to go under the glasses. I'll take the glasses, though. 
you can you can mimic effectively push very lightly and gently don't harm it but you can if you maybe go from the bottom of the side you can push your eye a tiny tiny bit while open it's got to be open okay and you can mimic looking a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right you you it, rather than an internal self-generated movement of the eye mm. you can physically move the eyeball so we're capable, right? So, and this gets to our next subject, um, uh, Patrick. Uh, uh, virtual reality. You you did an interesting interview with Werner Herzog in the New Yorker uh, a few years ago about three D and virtual reality, and it's not surprising. I mean, that Herzog um, is so interested in it. Um, how does this play in our creation or our obsession with virtual reality? We've done lots of shows on it. We did one with, um, I'm not sure if he's your friend, but David Chalmers, who um, you cite on your Twitter page, uh, Chalmers, who's an expert on virtual reality. Uh, we've done one with, um, with Neil Stevenson, who invented the concept of the metaverse. H how does all this fit into your theory of consciousness uh, I, I mean are you suggesting that we that computers are a kind of weird extension of us in our in our interest in virtual reality is that we didn't need computers to invent them that we already have that well um, I think I think I open one of the chapters I don't even remember which um, with the with the sentence, the first time you tried virtual reality was the second time you opened your eyes. And what I mean by that is um, to the exact experiment that we just did, mm. right? Um, when you push the eyeball, the whole world moves. Uh, if you're not internally generating the eye movement, the world appears to jump around. Imagine, imagine taking a camera to different spots, right? That's effectively what your retinas see it. But the brain stitches it all together. And it, the ability for it to stitch it all together has to do with the fact that it can predict exactly what, um, if I move my eyes exactly this degree with this strength, um, the world I predict will change exactly this much. The objects that I see in front of me as they shift over will now be at a different spot in my retina. And if I'm good enough as a system to learn, as an early developed like, like kind of biological system to learn exactly where those objects will move when I move my eyes, you then can stitch everything together to create the illusion, which it is an illusion, I believe, of the the world being stable and you being the thing that moves around within it. So we become so, God, essentially, or our version of God. Well, we become um, consistent, right? So like- it Is what our in invention of God is. It's, it's like, we certainly become, um, we become omnipotent with respect to our own perception. I'll, I'll, I'll allow us to go there, <laughs> um, which is to say we very much become uh, 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 we, we know what's going to happen, if, if that sense, if that's your, uh, if that's how you would might, might define your, your deity of choice, um, because we are creating the movement that we can then cancel out by virtue of the prediction. And so 
to me, when I say the first time you tried virtual reality was the second time you opened your eyes, I mean that the first time you open your eyes, the world is a chaotic, confusing, colorless, blobless, featureless mess. Absolutely indecipherable, uninterpretable. But the second time you open your eyes, you've learned a little bit more about what happens when you move your eyes and a little bit more about the kind of statistics of the world. And all we are, I think, this, this adult version of us, which walks around and has these social concerns and these worldly concerns and, you know, effortlessly moves our eyes around and effortlessly creates this um, uh, perception of the stable world. We all just said we had to learn that. And so it's not a virtual reality in the sense that it's fake, but it's quite astoundingly virtual in the sense that the world should be way more confusing than it is. The world should appear to be so much more staccato and mm. so much more yeah, um, yeah, yeah. just, just, you know, Lynchian, honestly, <laughs> like, like just really confusing. Well, there's no, there's no transitions. I, I can't be the first person who has made the Lynch remark with you. Do you so, know him? Um, I don't know him personally, but uh, one odd fact is uh, Lynch and Werner Herzog both made this movie called My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? which takes place in Coronado, which is where I grew up. So I, I've always thought that that was a, a fun, they chose this bizarre little island off the coast of San Diego where things are darker than they first appear to, uh, to, make, a, to make a bizarre little movie. I believe that was their only collaboration. Um, Patrick, final question. This is an intriguing conversation. Um, uh, you mentioned, I mean, all this is about learning about ourselves as a species, as individuals. When I was doing some research on you, I mean, you write for the New Yorker, but you're a, you seem at least online to be quite an elliptical person. Your website's just a list of articles. Um, you, your, your Twitter is, I, I can't imagine you spending much time on, on social media. What, what, what did you learn, if anything, about yourself, Patrick House, having written this book? 19 ways of looking at consciousness. Did you learn anything about your own consciousness? The pause is a sign of respect proportional to the, to the question. Um, I, so there's a funny thing that happens, um, I, I, this is my first thing that I've ever kind of put out into the world. And well, your first book, but you've written lots of first articles. book. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of articles. The first thing that, uh, first child, first, first book, first child. child. Yes. <laughs> and there's a funny thing, which is, um, I had heard all these stories about people, um, uh, Woody Allen after kind of Manhattan was made before it came out. He, he said, I will make three movies for, for the, production company for the distributor. He said, I will promise to make you three movies if you just never release that. Please just never release that. Uh, I think David Foster Wallace at some point um, thought that before Infinite Jest, when it was in like galley stage, he uh, was like, I think I, 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 he got terrified that he had plagiarized everything. And he said, please don't publish it. Please, please, please don't publish it. And I, you know, that sounds from the outside, from a distance, like, like this weird kind of artistic anxiety just manifesting in these, these, bizarre artists. Um, and so I started thinking about the concept of, of that kind of editorial regret as I was writing this. And, and also this idea of 
what it means to read your own work. Like basically, this book is about the difference between the subjective and the objective. This book is about the difference between how do you how do you draw a boundary line between yourself and the rest of the world? Fundamentally, that's what it's about. And there's something very odd when you have to read your own writing because what you do is just editing, literally editing as you write. What I found myself having to do more so than I had ever done in my life was pretend to be reading it from the outside, pretend to be reading it as someone who didn't write it. Because when I read it line by line, when I'm close to it, I just think about all the counterfactual regret of the ways the sentences should have been or how they could be infinitely better and you know what a, what a failed uh, uh, outcome the, the, final, the final sentence is. But the thing that I found really interesting was I had surgery uh, uh, before I wrote, I believe, one of my... The question is, as a writer, how do you properly and effectively achieve editorial distance from your own work such that you can see it from the outside, right? That's both, to me, a consciousness question and also like a uh, formal question that writers are constantly wishing to answer. And something really happened, uh, interesting happened where one of the uh, journalist essays that I wrote, I wrote the last paragraph of it uh, right as I was about to go into surgery. I literally had to, I was in the gown and I had the laptop on, on my lap and I sensed the last edits, sent it off. You look as if you're still in the gown. Are you wearing a hospital gown now, right now? No, no, this is my uh, Duchamp uh, uh, 101. Um, And what I found interesting was when I woke up, I did not remember sending that email or writing that paragraph, right? And so there's there's a control condition, which is I have a hundred words of all the things I've ever written. There's a hundred words that I don't remember writing at all because I was literally, I had retrograde amnesia from the anesthetic, right? So it was knocked out of my memory. And those are the only hundred words that I've ever written that I like. And yeah. I think that has something to do with the failure of a brain to get outside of itself when critiquing things closest to it. So you just need to actually literally like obliterate your memory to become a different person. And so that, that, that I was thinking about that as I wrote this. I think that's as close as I got to learning something. So the book is a kind of an attempt by a neuroscientist to write a memoir, which is by definition bound to be a failure. Um, I would be hard for me. I used to, so when I was in grad school, um, I had a, I had a list of martinis that I would make for myself and my guests, and I had two columns. I was there for six years or something, and I, I, I wanted to be scientific about it, so I had the ingredients and the protocol for each of the martinis that I made, and I was being a bit experimental at times. And I had two columns. I would ask anyone I gave one to, and I would also rate my own, which was um, objective and subjective. So, so ingredient name of the martini, protocol, and then objective rating and subjective rating in different columns. And people always, fascinatingly, would give different answers on a scale of zero to 100 for the objective and the subjective. And I would kind of stubbornly insist that um, actually they must be exactly the same because at best, my what I consider to be objective is my best guess about what the outside world prefers or how they might rate it. Um, but fundamentally, it comes from inside my head. So therefore, it can only be subjective. Therefore, these two kind of column ratings must be, must be the same. How could they possibly be different? So when you say a neuroscientist writing a memoir and, oh, you know, what else? I guess I would, I would push back, like, what else can you do? Um, yeah. uh, you, you're, you're, you're fundamentally creating this 
object, but it's coming from your head. Every writer, no matter what they're doing, is fundamentally writing a memoir, no matter how much objective, dispassionate, third-person research they think they're putting in. Um, you know, every, every character is typed. That's, that's memoiristic. Well, that's good stuff. Congratulations on your first child, Patrick. 19 Thank ways you. of looking at consciousness. I hope it's not the last. I, don't, I suspect it won't be. It's a very original take on the world. Um, what else are you, I'm sure you're a very active reader. What else do you read to stimulate yourself outside sort of neuroscientific research? What novels or nonfiction books do you read? Um, I mostly science fiction. I, I, um, I know that it sounds almost too apropos, but just pure, especially during pandemic times, I find myself, I find myself kind of reverting to childhood joys. Like I went to the batting cages and things that I had, would never do as an adult because as an adult, you're, you're seen. Um, and so, but with, with, with nobody watching, I found myself reverting back to ch childhood joy, um, including batting cages, uh, martinis and science fiction so 